Hey guys, uh, fireside chat I did uh, for a logistics and freight kind of conference which is super unique but there was a lot of great kind of trials and tribulation of entrepreneurship. So this is a, a unique podcast where both executives and entrepreneurs I think are gonna get a ton of value out of this. So hope you enjoy, hope everybody's been well. Miss you guys and hope you're having a great start this summer. This is the Gary V Audio Experience. Oh, there you are. Hey, brother. You. How you doing? Yeah. Really you came from the other way. So, like I said, we don't know what to expect. So. <laughs> right off the bat. Well, I'm so excited to, to have you here. We have a mutual friend. We actually have a couple mutual friends. So, Ted Ailing. Yes. Uh, so, I think, is Ted here? Uh, I don't know if he's in the audience. Um, but, uh, interesting enough, that's how I actually first heard about you, uh, was through Ted. And uh, Ted's like the underground mayor of Chattanooga. He sure is. Today. But one of the things that's interesting is this New York media company that you've built actually ended up opening a Chattanooga, Tennessee office. Yes. I'd love to hear why. Why Chattanooga? You know, I think everybody in this room, whether professionally or personally, realizes serendipity and, you know, a lot of different nuances that you never expect come into play. I, I had a new book come out um, several years ago that I wanted to promote. and. My favorite thing about being a marketer and a salesperson is I prefer to be a marketer because then it comes to me. But when I have something I have to accomplish, I have to go into sales mode. And so when that book was out, I wanted to, for it to do well and I created packages where I would trade you know, an enormous amount of book sales for me showing up somewhere and I get this email from Ted in Chattanooga and he came in heavy and hot and I was thrilled. I mean, I'm, I'm agnostic about where I go. Uh, when you have the KPI of the results, you go anywhere. Um, I didn't realize there wasn't a direct flight to Chattanooga. That was a little bit complicated. But other than that, I got there and then what took over is the same reason most of the good things in my life have happened, which is within the first eight minutes of being on the ground, I just, you know, intuitively was like, this is an interesting place. And it wasn't, you know, a lot of times later on people manipulated to, it was the fiber or this and that. It was strictly the human beings and just the gut feeling I had navigating through the different businesses and people that I met. At the macro level, I'm trying to build a very serious communications company and my biggest concern in building it is getting too much in the silo of New York or LA or London and so I give a lot of thought about where to open up offices to make sure that you're getting a flavor of all the different mindsets and angles and nuances around the world. Like, you know, as somebody who, you know, his career took a big turn when he started investing in Silicon Valley startups, what you were just saying on stage that I caught, you know, not only are the costs and competitive landscape of talent different in Silicon Valley and Chattanooga, but the entire ecosystem of how one sees the world. Mm -hmm. And I think one thing everybody in this room can appreciate is perspective is incredibly important. And you need different perspectives to achieve big things. And so there was a very macro ambition for me to open offices in places that weren't like LA, San Francisco, New York, and. Nuga ended up being the first one. <laughs> we, as a Chattanooga native, I certainly appreciate that. It's interesting, um, I talk to a lot of, you know, we sit at the intersection of Silicon Valley with freight, and, and we're venture-backed as well, so we're in constant dialogue, and I, I can empathize and relate with the founders in the Valley. Um, but in many ways, I find that even the most successful companies that have raised venture funds that are in San Francisco oftentimes don't have as deep context about the industry that they're just, they have a ton of success, and you, can't, you, you have to give them credit for the success. But it's interesting because someone who has deep market context, oftentimes those companies don't. I'm wondering, when you look at your outside of New York, outside of San Francisco, and, and a lot of freight companies are geographically dispersed in the Midwest and the Southeast. What do you see that's different about those particular entities than out in the Valley? Well, in the Valley, you know, as many people here know, an enormous percentage of those companies are started by extremely young people. And so they have no context of any industry. <laughs> uh, the other thing that 
many may know in this room but may not, is one of the biggest reasons I've walked away and didn't start a venture capital firm on the back of being an early investor in Facebook and Twitter and Uber. I had all this momentum and somewhere about seven or eight years ago, I realized how much I didn't enjoy you know, investing and more importantly, investing in companies that weren't actually building companies. They were building financial arbitrage machines. You know, most of the companies in Silicon Valley today are built to raise another round of fundraising and then sell to a bigger company or right now because the IPO market is hot, go public. It's all math, it's all Excel sheet, it's all CAC and LTV. It's legitimately not, like I'm not kidding here, and this is, it's not a raz, it's just not what I'm interested in. I'm far more, like, you know, I come from a, growing up in a liquor store that was a family business, baseball cards, like I'm a merchant, I'm a build a business kind of guy. Um, yeah, I just, it's very awkward to watch and sit in meetings where everything is about pandering to more capital, not to executing for your customer. So, so, I mean, is it a bubble or is this just a, a phenomenon? Do you think it's a bubble? I do. And where, where is the end? Is it Uber's IPO? Yeah, I mean, if I knew that, <laughs> I'd be quicker to my path of buying the New York Jets. <laughs> I don't know. And, and, and by the way, I could also be disproportionately wrong. Like, I, I think I'm already wrong. I would have never thought that we could be here 11 years. Po- you know, the way we solved 2007, 8, 9's economic issue felt like such a Band-Aid that I thought was gonna lead to such horrible behavior, which it has, um, but I would have never thought that the global economy and the US economy would have been able to sustain 11 years of hyper growth during that kind of bad behavior. Is it just funding unlimited I'll better, be, better. You know, look, I think one thing I hope you'll appreciate here for the next 55 minutes, I'm gonna stay in my lane. I'll talk about things I know and I won't talk about things I don't know. The macro rationale to the global economy is something above my pay grade. It's just mm-hmm. not where I spend my time. You know, obviously there's an enormous amount of capital coming in from SoftBank, from Saudi Arabia, from other places that I think continues to maintain it. But this is the greatest era of fake entrepreneurship ever um, because there's just so much money in it, right? I mean, for everybody in this crowd that's over 40 years old, like I am myself, um, we didn't grow up in a world thinking that our idea was worth $4 million. And that is absolutely what the average you know, highly educated 21-year-old sitting in college thinks. She or he thinks that whatever idea they come up with, they should go and easily be able to get a million dollars on a $4 million valuation for their Uber of sneakers. <laughs> but it's interesting because there have been some successes. And so how do you define, you talked about fake entrepreneurship versus real entrepreneurship. How do you, how do you know when you look at a deal, how do you know which is which? Is which? You don't. So, wait, so you've made some significant investments, early stage investments. Yeah, but I've stopped. Uber was one of those, right? Yeah, I mean, but, I, but I've stopped. Okay. And I've stopped because in 2006, 7, 8, 9, 10, when I would sit down with an entrepreneur, she or he was an entrepreneur because entrepreneurship was coming out of an era where it wasn't on a pedestal. Right now, everybody wants to be an entrepreneur because it's legitimately cool, which is just wild for me to think about, you know, like just the way, you know, being a businessman or woman wasn't cool in 1992. I mean, it was Bill Gates, you know, like mm-hmm. a fucking nerd, you know, like <laughs> so, so now that everybody wants to put entrepreneurship in their Instagram profile and that's cool in the club, that is just bizarro world, but that's also done what sports and rapping has, which is everybody wishes they are. And mm-hmm. What's different about entrepreneurship than rap and sports is when you say you're a rapper, someone's like, all right, rap. And then if you <laughs> suck, everyone's like, oh, you suck. You know? <laughs> and when you say you're a basketball player, people are like, at the YMCA or, or going to the league. But when somebody now says they're an entrepreneur, it's just accepted. And we, we haven't matured into, are you a successful entrepreneur or a wannabe entrepreneur? And I, you know, to be very frank, I'm concerned about it because I think the one thing I love about entrepreneurship is it's binary. Either you're going to win or you're going to lose. And I think that there's a lot of people right now that are not built with dealing with the emotional baggage that comes along with a public loss. Um, 
and so I spent a lot of time with young entrepreneurs around the mentality of like, when you lose, you know, are you ready to take that ridicule and what are you gonna do? Um, but you don't. I think the one, you know, one of the ways you can is look, in the rare occasion that I'll make a investment these days, I like people who've already built a real business. Mm -hmm. You know, I think one of the ways you can do it, you know, as I've evolved, I get way more into the jockey than the horse. So much of the money I've lost in investing was the idea was great and I would have run it successfully, but I bet on somebody who'd never run a business before. And again, so many people here know running a successful business has way more to do with emotional intelligence than the ability to know how to make a good decision about a product or service. You can build a great SaaS product, you can have all your CAC and LTV properly figured out, you can have a lot of things right, but as a CEO, if you do not know how to build a comfortable culture that creates retention mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, and many other variables, you're gonna be vulnerable through actual business yeah. long term. And so, um, I'm very much on the kick now of the jockey over the horse. It's interesting you say that because I, I think about my own life and I think the most significant times in my life have been when I failed and failed in a really sort of public way. Um, and, and, and just for my own clarity, <laughs> a, uh, a macro failure like out of business or a micro a failure? failure. No, no, I'm talking about a business failure. Like I, I, macro, like macro. out of business. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, for me, it was out of business. Yeah, because I think, and I apologize for jumping in and then please continue, but I think I'm obsessed with micro failures. I, I prefer not the macro failure, right? Like, I always the think- bu- The business survived, I just didn't. So. Okay. <laughs> yeah, um, so that's a personal like macro Like, when you run failure. out of cash, yeah. they, they, they make decisions. But I, I wonder, it's interesting, because you think about that, and that, you know, it sort of informs you much better because you sort of have this, I think the thing for Pattern me Pattern recognition, right? What's that? You've seen this movie well, before. Well, you've seen it. And, and for me, it was this first time, I always sort of been in a, a, having a family that has successful entrepreneurship, you sort of see the model of what a successful entrepreneurship does. As you're a kid growing up and you, you see your dad build business, he went through tough, I mean, I remember having conversations, there were times that they were, you know, tight on cash and things were not always, in the early days, were not always great. But I didn't see that as a kid because I idolized my father. Um, and I looked to him as this sort of god of business. And I never understood that he had gone through these, that had, he had had tougher skin because he had to do it. And he had seen his father do that and stuff. And so the, when I truly sort of fucked it all up, when I truly, like, it, it was in for me, it's the first time I ever felt what it was like to completely just be done yeah. and had failed in a way that people knew. And that was humiliating. But what, what it taught me was, that I could, I could, I could do it again. I, I could, I could, I, I that, that it, it was painful and it sucked and you never want to go back there. But you also are now, you know, you can survive it. And you can rebuild. And I think that was a much more powerful lesson than if you just had unlimited success. And in some ways, in my I mean, early twenties, I had a platform inside of my dad's business that enabled me to build a very successful business. And so I was sort of insulated and I thought, well, that's what success is because you, you have this platform. It's easy to build a really successful business when you already have an infrastructure. Having to do it on your own is quite different. And, and, I, and that was sort of the first time I realized it. And, and so it's interesting you say that, um, you look for successful businesses, but I also imagine the character of, of the story is also important to you. It is, but to, to your point, like the path to success is not straight. Right. And so you're right, you look under the hood, but you said something super important and now I'm just gonna veer off for a second because this is gonna bleed into parenting as much as it is entrepreneurship. I, you know, the greatest thing that happened to you was getting punched in the mouth. The, the greatest reason I believe that we're living through such fake entrepreneurship right now is not only is there an enormous amount of capital in play for these 22 to 25 year olds, but they're the generation you know, that was parented in a way that tried to eliminate losses from the ecosystem. I mean, this is the generation of eighth place trophies, right? This is, you know, my favorite thing that's going on in society right now is 45 to 60 year olds, you know, clowning on millennials and making fun of them. And I keep looking at them and I keep reminding them that you parented these kids. (laughs) Everybody gets a trophy, right? Yeah, I mean, and so, you know, we've demonized to these kids losing. I love losing. Like micro losing, especially Mm -hmm. more than macro losing is incredibly motivating. 
You know, I mean, there's nothing more fun than losing regular season games. Right. You know, you learn from them. You <laughs> yeah. know, come the playoffs, you'd like to build on that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I think adversity is the foundation of success. Being born in the Soviet Union, living in a studio apartment with eight family members when I was a kid, going on one and a half vacations my entire childhood, my parents buying me nothing because they didn't have like the money nor the mindset to do that for me is fundamentally the reason I'm successful at entrepreneurship. I'm not scared of anything, nor do I care about anybody else's judgment, Mm -hmm. which allows me to navigate very quickly, and my losses are my losses, and my wins are my wins, and they both feel the same. When I hear the accolades, or when I get razzed, I basically can't hear them. I'm just so in love with the process. And And that's what getting up off the floor is, you had no choice. You just, it's in your DNA to want to play. Yeah, yeah. You know, like, you know, and I think that self-awareness for the executives and the founders and the different people in this room is an incredibly important foundation to the conversation right now, both for the entrepreneurs, but also for the key executives and employees of an organization and the responsibility of the number one to put players in the best position to succeed. Mm-hmm. Um, is a formula that really matters. It's, it's funny you say that. I, uh, so I, I didn't, I, I think entrepreneurs have this thing after a sort of a big loss where you have this, you know, people, writers talk about writer's block. They can't, I couldn't think of anything that was interesting. And I remember I took a job selling employee engagement services, which was not fun at all. Like the, the fact that the business exists is sad. Um, and I hope nobody's in that business here. Um, but I remember I went back to Chattanooga and I went and speaking of Ted again, I was in his office and he goes, what the hell are you doing? Like, why aren't you an entrepreneur? Like, why don't you get back in the game? And he was the guy that sort of pushed me to say, get back into it, like go back and do it. And the thing was this time it was, I was sort of fearless. I didn't care. I knew what it was like. And I, uh, I had burned a bunch of cash day trading cause I thought that was how I was going to make my, my fortune. <laughs> don't do that either. And um, I opened up at a Bank of America, uh, zero interest, I had good credit, it was the only thing I really had. And I opened up a zero credit, uh, zero balance, or zero APR credit card, and I ran up $50,000. Bank of America was my first investor. And it was fun to kind of get back into the game. Uh, they don't know that. Um, I did pay it off, uh, which was actually fun. But um, it was fun to get back in the game after having done it and sort of seeing that, hey, there is a sort of a natural desire. But I think what drives, has driven me, and I would imagine it drives other entrepreneurs, that is that they've had sort of this fake success. They thought they were successful, and then it all went away, and then they had to go back and build it again. And well, I think it becomes that's what we're going to see in the next chapter of this era. The amount of people that celebrate when they fundraise is laughable. I mean, 98% of Silicon Valley startups lose money each month. Like. I don't know if you heard, but it doesn't take a hero to lose money each month. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, a, a lot of them think that they're successful, yet they haven't made a single cent in profit, which is the lifeline of a business mm-hmm. that isn't in a position to raise more capital. And I do think that what's amazing about the game is here we are and we're talking about when will it happen or what's the bubble, and literally tomorrow you can wake up and Bear Stern can happen, and it starts to domino the other direction. And it's that quickly. Right? Mm-hmm. You know, you've got an entrepreneur sitting now in year three and she's about to turn the corner, right? She's been losing 80,000 a month and now two more months and she's gonna have this or that or the other thing and we're gonna be making money and all of a sudden, you know, they, you know they're on you know, third and a half base on raising their next round, which will give them that air cover and boom, the news comes out in the morning that XYZ Bank does this or the mm-hmm. college debt crisis has done Y or, or China did Z and the investor pulls out, nobody else is interested and six months later they're out of business. Yeah, so what is your message to those startups and there's some in the room? Make profit. <laughs> it's that simple, right? Yeah. I can't argue with that, so. You know, like, And, and to the startups in the room, like, if this kind of hit you like, huh, that makes some sense, or you've got your spidey senses going, like, you go and audit your expenses. Mm-hmm. Like, what are you paying for fruit bars? Or, you know, like, you know, who's the three employees that bring no value to the company anymore, but you have a sense of loyalty? Like, run an actual business. And I think that overfunded, lots of money in the system, is no different than being a super spoiled kid. 
you know, like if your parents buy you BMW on your 16th birthday, you're soft. Yeah. <laughs> you are. There's nothing wrong with being soft. There's nothing wrong with being soft, but you're fucking soft. <laughs> so let's talk about, you mentioned culture. Let's talk a little about culture. And, I, and I, I've, you've talked about this, is that people who are, who, are, who are dragging down the culture of a business should be, they shouldn't be there. You should get rid of them immediately. I, oh, I, I'm a big fan of this. Let's, let's talk you about that. that? This is, I mean, this is, it's interesting because um, there's, there's a, a view of hire slow, fire fast. Uh, and there's also a view of if you have someone who's cancerous to your business, I think a lot of businesses get caught up in trying to it's document and coach. and <laughs> it, just, it just goes nowhere, right? If they're cancerous. I wish most businesses were into documenting and coach. What most <laughs> businesses are doing is, Harold's a dick, but his numbers are remarkable. Yeah. That's what's really happening. That's what I'm referring to. That if you've got somebody who's driving top line revenue, or is she or he is crushing their numbers, what most companies are doing is they're looking at surface level. They're like, ooh, if we fire Carol, we're gonna lose those three accounts because she's so wired in there. What they don't realize is the hidden lost revenue that's happening with Carol or Harold destroying the culture and completely messing up the continuity and speed of the macro. So what do you do, from your point of view, what do you do if you have, if you have someone who's really kicking ass, bringing the numbers in, and they're just a, they're, they're a jerk. What do you do with them? What I do, one, one man's point of view, is I sit them down, I look them dead in the face and I say, you think I'm joking because you're delivering, but I'm not joking. And if you can't be a good human being, I'm going to fire your face. <laughs> that's, that's pretty right there, right? That's what I do. And I do it, and I do it, you know, I'm a big shot on stage now and I'm acting tough. I do it. I do it in a conversation. I'm like, look, I'm not kidding. Like, I know you don't believe me because you've worked in other places that value dollars, and I value dollars. I just value slow dimes, right? And so you're gonna screw me up. You're not liked. There's a problem here. A, it's my fault because this is my company, so tell me what I've done wrong to put you in this position. Do you hate Stevie? Or is something going on at home? Like, what am I missing? Nine out of 10 times, you're missing nothing. It's just unfortunately, you know, because before you even get to that conversation, you, you're trying to figure out what's wrong. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then you, three out of 10 times, remarkably, people do take a left turn because they get scared straight or they had it in them or normally they're insecure. And so I spent 40 of the 50 minutes on trying to make them feel safe. Yeah. And, uh, and seven out of ten, time, 10 times, you fire their face. <laughs> How long do you give them? You know, it's funny, it's run the gamut. And you know, when I think about these 25 conversations as we're talking right now, one makes me laugh because it, I gave them 24 hours because literally the next day they like, were ridiculous. Yeah. Um, other times it's been a couple weeks, a couple months, um, not usually more than two months after that conversation for me, but everybody has their own tolerance. It, it's remarkable what happens when you make that decision. The buy-in from the rest of the crew that you knew because most employees think that the big boss, that she or he have no idea what's actually going on. That they live in an ivory tower, that they don't know what's going on in the details, that that employee's tricking them, that they're looking the other way because of money. So when you deliver on culture, the buy-in in the macro is remarkable, and what it does for the business is extraordinary. I'm a, I'm a pot-committed buyer of this thesis, that you have to fire the best performers that are destroying your culture. How big is your team? What's the size? VaynerMedia is a thousand people. Wow, okay. And how, how long have you guys been around? We've been around for nine and a half years. Nine and a half years. And so you've hired a lot of people. Yes. You've also interviewed a lot more people. Yes. When you bring someone into the organization, do you interview every single candidate? I do not. I did the first 300, I would say. Wow, okay. Um, and I do obviously at a certain seniority level. Um, and I try to meet with every employee within the first year, mm -hmm. um, but I don't hire everybody, and that's probably a good thing, because I'm probably an all-time ridiculous hire. <laughs> um, I usually hire people within the first three minutes in my head, and I, actually, have, I have no I problem. literally walk I out. I have no it's questions like, yeah. for you. You're gonna lie anyway, like, who cares? Let's just get to it. 
<laughs> I, 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 I'm the same way. I, I, I What's make your biggest problem? Well, sometimes I work too hard. <laughs> <laughs> like, interviewing is such what a is bullshit. The worst, what is the worst response you've ever gotten on that question? That. I hate that question. Like, I hey, work too hard? What's your shortcoming? Like, what's a cliche reason you struggle sometimes? You know, Gary, sometimes I get so passionate about my work that I work extra hard <laughs> and burn myself out. Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> So what is the best answer to that question? Or the best type of answer? <laughs> the truth, right? <laughs> like, sometimes I undermine my fellow employees because I want a bonus, you know? <laughs> you know, honestly, I go on intuition. I, I hire remarkably fast. Mm-hmm. I fire slower than I'd like, but I've gotten faster over the last 25 years. Yeah, as you get more confidence in the... I hate negativity, yeah. and in that... I think I've created too much entitlement and have kind of like tried to fix the bad boy too much. And over time, I've just gotten better. Experience matters. So I'm curious, you were one of the first investors in Uber. Um, at the time, it was, a, it was an unknown startup. What about that business? And talking about culture, uh, a lot has been said about Uber's culture. And I'm wondering, when, when you first heard that pitch, A, what did you like about the pitch? And then B, what is your perspective on the culture issues that have been written about Uber? So, I got a long-winded story here, I'll try to go fast. Number one, and if you literally Google my name and Uber and Paris, like right now on your phone, Gary Vaynerchuk, Uber, Paris, you'll read a Business Insider article. This is just fun for me one day for my grandkids. I was, not only am I an early investor in Uber, and we'll get to that in a minute, because I'm not as early as I should be because I passed on the angel round twice. Like literally Travis came back to me and had coffee with me in San Francisco and kind of like begged me to invest because we were such homies. My first book, Crush It, the only people I acknowledge in the book is my family and one random person, Travis. He was investing at that time before Uber and like read the book and gave me some good feedback. Like literally that's how close I was with Travis and I passed twice on the angel round. And if I wrote my normal twenty-five to $50,000 check, I would be looking at somewhere in the ballpark of 500 to 800 million dollars in the next couple of months. So that would be considered a loss in entrepreneur land. Um, uh, But I was literally in the room when it was invented. Garrett Camp, who was the founder and inventor of a company that some of you might remember called StumbleUpon, which was a cool website back in the day. Literally, literally, I can, it's crazy. I'm sitting in the couch post this keynote I gave at Lay Webb, 2008, I think, nine. He's sitting on the ground right over there having like some whiskey and he looks up at the, like eight people and he goes, you know, what do you think about a lip, what do you think, wouldn't it be cool if on your phone there was an app and you could order a limousine that could pick you up right away? And I remember the first hot second, I'm like, that's a rich person's problem, mm-hmm. right? Like I'm like, yeah, okay, fine, but like, and, and then a couple months later I saw him and he's like, hey, that thing we're doing, it's real, it's called Uber Cab now. That's the original name of Uber, Uber Cab. And at first, they, it was a side project because Travis was investing. Garrett, I think, just bought back StumbleUpon from uh, the company AOL, I can't remember who bought it. And they literally hired another person to be the CEO and outsourced the building of it. So it was a side project. So the biggest reason I didn't invest was because it was a side project. Mm-hmm. And then a couple months later, Travis jumped in, ran it, and it became what it became. As far as the culture, you know, listen, at the end of the day, this is why I speak so much about culture. I'm completely, un, I have no concept. Uh, during that era, Travis went super, like, head down, and I spoke to him like three times. I spoke to Garrett zero times. I, I had, you know, I'm not on the board, I'm not mm-hmm. on the advisory board, so I have as much insight to the culture as you do, which is you're reading it through the press and through employees posting on blogs, and so you take it for what it is, but ultimately it was enough pressure for Travis to not be running the company he built, which is something every entrepreneur would fear oh, and yeah. not want to happen, um, and it's why it's super important. It is, um there's been the IPO coming up. He's not going to be the ringing of the bell. Do you think that's the right decision for Uber? I didn't know that until they, right they're now. They're not letting him on the stage. That's too bad. You know, it's look. What I don't know is how. Look, everything stems from the top. So the culture is is on him. Um, 
I'm fascinated by the board's power. Like, I'm very caught here. Three variables running through my head in real time. One, I'm skewed because Travis is my friend. Mm -hmm. So already I'm not a clean piece of data. Two, even if he wasn't and I didn't know him, um, I'm always pro-operator, (laughs) anti-board, right? Because the operator's in the trenches. The board is on the sidelines pontificating. Mm. Um, I don't know why they've decided to do that. I understand it. You know, the, the, it would probably be massively d- distracting. I'm sure everybody wants the stock to do well. Mm-hmm. Travis is on to his next thing anyway. I'm, I wonder how much he cares or doesn't care. But, you know, as somebody who's already built one business that he doesn't operate anymore, which was the building of my dad's liquor store business into an e-com giant in the wine space, watching my best friend and my dad operate that company is heartbreaking. I know, I know the feeling. I can because they're not running it the way I would want to run it. <laughs> and so when you build something and it goes into a different place, it's tough. You know, I have a lot of, I mean, ultimately, like, in a lot of ways, that's the right decision. In a lot of ways, it's the wrong decision. I think ultimately, like, who gets to judge? I don't know. When you're at Thanksgiving dinner or you're a family, do you, did you have a tendency to tell them what to do or what you would do? Well, it was, we had such a weird ebb and flow, right? Because I got into my dad's business. My dad comes to America with $100 in his pocket and in seven years owns his own liquor store. It's such a remarkable accomplishment. I come into my dad's business. It's a $3.8 million business doing 10% gross profit. Um, and I build it from that to a $60 million business in six years with no capital, no credit line. And so there's these two massive dynamics in play, right? Mm-hmm. Which is, you know, immigrant makes good, whiz kid grows extreme. Like, it's a, it's a real interesting tension. And you couldn't find two operators who agree only on 10% and then disagree on 90% more <laughs> than me and my dad. And so there was constant friction. Um, which was very aggressive in a, in a good way and a not so good way, family business dynamics. Now that I've been out of it for, let's say, really out of it for the last four or five years, I, I don't because I'm pro-operator, <laughs> anti-board. Have you learned the hard way? Like, no, you know? I haven't. I, it was, I don't want to be a hypocrite about that. The second I stopped running it day to day, they got to run it. Yeah. And my two cents are bullshit. I keep them to myself. They ask me, a lot, and I'm thrilled, yeah. but I, I'm just unbelievably not interested in throwing my two cents at something I'm not willing to operate um, because I don't like when people do that to me. Yeah. I love when people like, I love when employees, like Gary, you know what you don't know? I'm like, tell me, Sarah. Tell me what I don't know. You know, like people, you know, think about for everybody here, when you started your career and you managed nobody, how much you shit on your manager, and then the second you started managing people, <laughs> you got a totally different perspective, right? Remember all those things you thought about your parents until you became a parent? <laughs> you know, I just, I just think people are funny when they don't sit with all the context. Right. One of the, my favorite reasons to sit with employees, and I do it a lot, is for those conversations. Mm-hmm. When somebody gets a little bravado and starts throwing stuff at me, I always treat that with respect and then I throw 87,000 things at them that they have no idea about and then they leave with their tail between their legs and I feel pumped. <laughs> I, I, I can empathize with that, Daniel Pickett. So, <laughs> um, um, I wanted to dive in. So do you have a board, by the way? No. So you don't have a board. This is a, you've completely bootstrapped this business. Yes. And it was... Your, your dad's wine business that you built online, you built this massive business, and then you parlayed and I built that. that for, but I, I didn't parlay it. What I did was, this is an interesting part of my story, I built my family business, but I'm an immigrant, not an American-based family business. What that means is, it's the dad's business until he dies. So I built this business from three to 60 million and at 34 years old, because we poured all the money back into the business and I never paid myself more than $100,000 a year, I go and start VaynerMedia with my brother and I have to start it in the conference room of Buddy Media, a great SaaS business that did extremely well and sold to Salesforce because I had no money, right? So you have this great accomplishment on your resume of building this monster business and you have no financial benefit from it. I had shit credit, I had nothing. So at 34, I bootstrap Vayner. Um, The one great thing I had hovering, we mentioned it earlier, 
even though I didn't pay myself more than 70, 80, 100,000, back to like making money versus spending money, running a PNL. I lived in a shitty apartment, I bought nothing and I worked every day. So I had, over this eight year period, you know, $100,000, $200,000 saved and then I invested all of it. I took my bank account to zero because I decided Silicon Valley was gonna happen and the first three companies I invested in were Facebook, Twitter and Tumblr, right? Mm -hmm. And so, I'm rich. Um, <laughs> But more importantly than that, when I started Vayner, when I started Vayner in 2009, it was already obvious that Facebook was gonna win. Mm -hmm. It was obvious that Twitter was doing super well. So I had no money, but I had these assets that were looming that I had some confidence on and then I bootstrapped uh, VaynerMedia. And, and it's just completely through social media. That was how you built it in YouTube? Or? VaynerMedia, the company itself? Mm -hmm. At that point, I had written Oh, right when I started VaynerMedia, Crush It came out four months later, and it was the book about social media that became kind of this book on the back of what I did in the wine business more, but it built awareness around me, which led to a couple of first clients for VaynerMedia, Pepsi, Gillette, and that started the process. And why, why did they want you? Is it just because you could reach a, you reach a different audience? I, at that point, had 800,000 Twitter followers, and Pepsi, the business, had... 400. Wow. And they were like, why do you have that? <laughs> and people were starting to understand that there was something in the air about social media. And at first our company was uh, $5,000 a month to do community management for brands. So Campbell's paid us $5,000 a month to reply to people on Twitter. And remember the old Facebook where every comment showed up on the wall? And so we, you know, people would be like, Campbell's, your soup sucks. And we're like, Sorry, you know, <laughs> you know, so at first it was community management um, and, uh, and then it evolved from there. So, so, you know, freight, transportation is a, a very older, it's, you know, it's, it's a very old industry and um, up until recently there hasn't been a lot of venture investment and so we're, we, you talked about the bubble, the bubble didn't, you know, I think there's arguments of whether it is a bubble um, and I think there's different points of view. It's Good. still... There hasn't been a substantial, if you take like fintech and, and, and broader consumer plays and broader internet plays, it's a very small amount of money. To us, it's growing really fast and it's growing exceptionally fast. But one of the things that I find interesting is the traditional freight companies don't understand marketing. Companies that, the only ones that are doing a good job of it are the big parcel companies, which is really you know FedEx and UPS, which is Because they're consumer. more consumer centric. That's right, so the B2B, so there's a lot of folks in this room that are predominantly B2B. And what you guys have, massively felt the benefits of is something that I've been yelling about for a half a decade, which is if you're in B2B, you have to act like a media company, not an advertiser. Mm -hmm. FedEx and UPS are advertisers. You know, you're acting like a media property. We, we do, but I, I think the broader audience in this room, when you look at, Mar what is it, I'd love for you to tell them to spend money with me, but I'm not gonna do that. Um, what is it that you would recommend to folks in the room that as you think about marketing and branding, you talk a lot about taking advantage of social media, take advantage of Facebook and LinkedIn as one that you do. I'd love for you to, to dive into the future of media and marketing. The advice that I think will play for everybody in the room regardless of what you do, including if like you're the PTA president or thinking about running for local office, like I have no idea what you wanna do professionally or personally, but the one thing that has been tried and true and I keep things extremely simple is you have to reverse engineer the audience you're trying to reach and you have to tell them something that brings them value, not you value. Very simple. It is the simplest model of I think, all time. I think most, most marketing and PR agencies that we talk to, it's you get the copy, if they write it, it looks like marketing copy. Nobody's gonna read it. When, we, when our journals write it, it's an editorial piece where it's written in a way that's written more like a journalist would write it, it gets read. It, but because it, it's not overflowing. And that's not just about us. Because a PR company the, and a salesperson are in the business of selling. And a journalist is in the business of informing. It's fundamentally different. Like, the biggest reason I've popped is every piece of content I put out on LinkedIn, Facebook, YouTube, my podcast, I'm desperately trying to figure out how does this bring value for the other person, mm -hmm. not how am I gonna sell VaynerMedia or sneakers or wine. The end, it's, it's, it's unbelievably basic. I, this is like Bible shit. Yeah, and you, you pop out a lot of content 
and you do that, I mean, a substantial amount of content. One of my favorite things is your micro videos. Is taking, you have a videographer that follows your, are they here, by the way? He was just uh, chasing somewhere, I'm sure. <laughs> well, we have it filming right there. So, um, But you, you film yourself, and you take parts of that and turn it into product. I'd love for you to, to hear. Three years ago, I took a very interesting move that I probably debated for six months. Talk about somebody who genuinely doesn't, is very capable of taking negative and positive feedback, lives a life where he's comfortable navigating through judgment, and even for me, it took me a good six months to say, okay, am I okay with a human being following me around and filming me at all time? That is heavy charlatan, heavy, like, <laughs> it's uncomfortable territory, especially three years ago. <coughs> but I saw vlogging loading on YouTube, and the vloggers were first person. And I'm not, I'm, I, I'm running a huge company, I'm an executive, I'm not gonna be walking around with a camera like this, I'm also not a filmmaker or have that talent. But I knew that if I would film my day to day, that I could put out a vlog and show real entrepreneurship, you know, instead of mm -hmm. like the watches and the baby giraffes and traveling and you know, I wanted to show people like meetings and work and like the stresses of actually running a business. Uh, and two, I knew that I would be able to make this micro content. You know, the amount of pieces of content that I put on LinkedIn that get two, three, four million people to see it, and all it was was 47 seconds. I mean, it's gonna happen here. One or two of these questions is gonna be cut down and put on LinkedIn, and it's gonna bring awareness to who I am, which then will bring awareness to the things I do or the things I believe. And so, yeah, I believe, not only do I believe every business is a media company, I believe every human's a media company, and I also am very comfortable with somebody not liking that. People don't like personal brands, or when I make that statement, they're like, ugh, and that's fine. You don't have to be a media company, but you can be. I'm not telling you that you have to do it, I'm telling you that there's a lot of opportunity around it. And it's not that hard, right? With social media, I mean, there are, in trucking, there are truck drivers which have 10, 20, 30,000, 40,000 followers. They use a GoPro or they use their iPhone and they're yeah. in the cab talking about a story. They're breaking stories faster than sometimes we break them and we have professional journalists. And it's interesting because they bring perspective and they have these sort of cult-like thought. They're heroes of the driving community, but there's no investment. And I'm wondering, you have companies that do billions of dollars that do a poor job of communicating their brand and their values there, whether it's recruiting drivers or, or extending the brand, then these truck drivers, and, and not dismissive, they're smart as hell, that do it in the cab of their truck. And, and, and you've I, talked a lot about that. Watch this, real quick, um, if you can appease me. Uh, it's early, it's good to get blood flowing. Real quick, if you are now a human being that mainly watches HBO Go, Netflix, Hulu, or DVR, that if you mainly consume your TV now in a OTT, Netflix, kind of environment, please stand up. Real quick, just stand up if the far majority of TV you watch outside of live sports is done in this environment. I'm gonna wait, I wanna make sure everybody does this. Let's look around, I want everybody to look around. Let's all agree that this is not a 15 year old teenage crowd, right? <laughs> and, geez, 80, 90%, you can sit, thank you. 80 to 90% of this audience now mainly watches television without even the ability to see a commercial, yeah. right? And for the 10% that were still sitting, that when they watch network TV shows, right, or cable news, that when it goes to a commercial, they grab their phone and live their life. They're not sitting quietly and patiently to consume a TV commercial. $70 billion is spent in America a year to produce and distribute TV commercials. Not a soul is consuming them. Mm -hmm. Super Bowl, yes, I would buy Super Bowl all day long. But that's exactly what you just said. Mm -hmm. It's happening in every facet of every part of the land. People are spending enormous amounts of money on what worked yesterday and they're demonizing what's happening today. Yeah, I mean, I look at my, I look at my kids, my, my sons, I have two kids. But real three, quick, and I apologize, the re and, and then I'll let you go. The reason I said this is not a 15-year-old crowd, the argument about Facebook and YouTube and social media, everybody goes into, I look at my kids and they do X. I'm trying to remind you that these old fuckers do that too. <laughs> it's fair. 
But, it, right? but, it, but, that, but that matters, right? Because what businesses do is they're like, Gary, I, you're right, I see it with my kids. I'm like, no, 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 no. The 57-year-old guy that you're trying to reach, he's not seeing that television commercial either, so let's have a conversation. Yeah. No, I, I think that's it's spot on. Um, getting to, to kids, my kids, YouTube. They don't, watch, they don't watch anything but YouTube. We have every channel that you could possibly get. They don't watch any of it. One of them watched Amazon Prime video and stream shows. They're not tuning into cable. I don't even think they turn on the box. Um, and, and we nobody, have it. And nobody's running here from this conference to run home and carefully go through their direct mail. Right. Right? And nobody here is clicking a banner ad. Yeah, you're and right. And nobody wants to open an email spam, and people here LinkedIn spam everybody, but never open one of their LinkedIn spams, and so there's all this stuff that's going on, tons of money and energy spent, and the reality is it's not reaching the consumer. So how, how do you, if you have a marketing executive in this room, what is the message for them? They've, they've taken over this, this new, this old school business, billion dollar business, they're responsible for marketing it, and the rules have changed on them. What would you say they could do to really drive brand equity and education? Become educated. And how, how, what is the, what's the goal there? To me, going on the internet and typing in things like how to, like literally typing into Google how to start a podcast for a B2B company. Uh, literally going into Google and saying how to run LinkedIn ads to land seven-figure contract deals. Like, the amount of things that I've seen happen in the B2B space on SaaS companies I've invested in or GE or SAP or clients I've worked with, all of them over-index when they act like media and all of them under-index when they try to do 1999 B2B marketing. Mm. Like, there's, like, it's unbelievably to, to watch people still buy full-page ads in a B2B magazine. In a, or, in a print magazine. That's right. And, and, and it's interesting because... But real quick, I have empathy for these executives because, you know, a lot of them actually know what to do, but the company they work for rewards through their internal scoring the old game, but they haven't created metrics how to measure the new game. Yeah. And I keep telling them, why don't you just measure business results? not impressions. Like literally I had a client that said, Gary, look, we just keep doing PR because we have a meeting every quarter and it says we got 47 billion PR impressions. And I laugh because they know, I know, everybody knows that they got 47 impressions, not 47 billion, <laughs> but they count all these crazy reporting. So the first thing a very senior marketing executive needs to do is go have a real debate with the board or the CEO about how marketing is measured if it's not being measured by actual business results. You know, we, we in my business, we look at a lot of the media in, in, in this space and, and have looked at some acquisitions. And the challenge is that a lot of the, these publications are print-based. And the decisions in freight are happening faster and faster, you know, same day, next day service. Most of the transactions, most of the tendered transactions are within 48 hours. So when, these, when you go out on print and you print something, it, the market has already moved on you by the time it gets there. But there is still a substantial amount of investment in print publications. And those businesses are dying. But they still, the mentality of those organizations is still very print-centric. When we hire a, a writer from a print publication, Legacy Print, they, at first it's sort of a culture shock of like, wait, I've got to report this is up in 30 minutes, and it's just a different world. It's because the, move, the, the news is moving so fast. Um, and, and I just think it's a different paradigm shift. I mean, pay, newspapers all, I think, I've read 60% of newspapers between the next five years are expected to fail because they just can't respond to the digital environment. But you have new media properties, Cheddar, you guys, are, are actually doing quite well. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, this is just such a fun conversation to have. I'm fascinated by people's inability to understand that technology changes our culture. Like, we used to ride horses to get around. <laughs> we don't anymore. Yeah. You know, like, the radio was the number one item in our society. Boxing and baseball became, and horse racing, were the major sports in this country because it was a great sport for radio. But then when television came, that's when football rose, because football's a great television sport. Like, things evolve. And, you know, again, this notion of holding the past on a pedestal because you understand it, or because it's safe, is why companies go out of business. 
So what do you what do you do? Our business is the not freightways, but the logistics sector. Yes, is is in many ways under attack by Silicon Valley. It's attacked by Amazon. It's attacked by retailers. It's just constantly the regulators. Everybody wants a piece of this massive industry, and it's it's becoming uh, really a hot sector. I'm wondering what's the message to a company that that doesn't have innovation as a core part of their business, how do they respond? By letting themselves die. <clears throat> but what do they do if they don't want to die? Innovate. And how do they do that? What's the secret? By looking at the leader of the company in the mirror and see if she or he is capable of innovating. Everything stems from the top. If, you're run, if you have a company run by somebody who right now is sitting and saying, well, I'm retiring in 18 months and I don't give a shit about innovation, you're in trouble. Or not talented enough to know how to innovate. Like, you know how many A's, number ones, hire a CMO and say you figure it out but they don't even know how to judge it? How are you a CEO in 2019 and don't spend 100 hours to educate yourself on how modern communication works so that you can judge it within your own organization? Gary, I didn't grow up with this stuff. You didn't grow up driving, you figured it out. <laughs> like, I know you didn't grow up with it, but it is your job, to, it's required of you to know how to run your business. And to me, how your business markets and communicates is as important as you knowing how to run the finances of your company. It's just that some people don't wanna put in the work to get updated on the new p- platforms and the new world, and that's to their peril. One of my investors on my board when he first invested in a company. And our marketing wasn't great, we, we sort of evolved. And he told me, he goes, the most successful companies that are able to raise capital and are able to sort of disrupt it have really strong understanding and instincts about marketing. And branding is very, very important to them. And I look at the transportation space and a lot of times the CMO is also the head of sales and they're putting in the same person and they seem to me to be very disparate skill sets. A salesperson is quite different. I'm wondering if you could talk about your observations in that. Yeah, I mean, a, a marketer and a salesperson are fundamentally different with the same objective, with different time frames for that objective. Um, most companies are, market, are, are salespeople. Mm-hmm. Like, they want short-term results. And building brand takes a long time. And bringing value to a customer with the ability to then monetize three years from then is a totally different skill set than cold calling somebody and getting a sales. Yeah. And, and there are people that do both. Listen, I'm very proud that I do both. I've done both my whole life. I like both, mm-hmm. which is probably why I can see how different they are. I think somebody who's sitting in the audience who feels like they're both can understand this. Man, they're different. And if you're one or the other, the other one's very foreign. You know, salespeople shit on marketers, right? Because they're like, it's all poofy, poofy, schmoofy stuff. We get stuff done. I made some money today, <laughs> right? Those, what do they do? What is that sign? What is that logo? Like, and then marketers make fun of salespeople because Nike doesn't sell. They built a brand, right? Yeah. And so Intel makes fun of, you know, like, so they're two very different things. I don't mind a CMO sitting at the top, but she better know both, and she better know how to have a leader in each function that triangles up to her, and she needs to keep both sectors super accountable for different KPIs, and they have to have empathy and understanding for each other of how they work together. And KPI tied directly into sales. What's the revenue you're actually generating? Yeah, but how one judges that, I I caught the last part as I was getting mic'd and you said something that's near and dear to my heart, which is we don't give a crap about our short-term profits, we're playing long game. So for me, you know, every business I build is in perpetuity. And so, as you can imagine, the marketer is being judged in a much longer time frame. However, I don't need them like slacking off and like golfing all day. Like, like you, you have to keep people accountable. I gotta make a profit. Yeah, right, but, right, yeah. but like they're just two very different things. And you, you know, I, I do think in how fast the world works now, a marketer can show a business result within a year, but I won't judge them in the first three and a half quarters, hmm. right? I think the difference between sales and marketing is sales, if we're using football as an analogy, has to put up points in every quarter really to be successful because they can't close the gap in the fourth quarter. Marketing could be down 31 nothing, 
and win 34-31 if they did all the right things in the first three quarters that put no ports to the board in Q4. They can. I like that. That's (laughs) going to be a clip on LinkedIn. (laughs) I like it. Well, we just have a few more minutes. Is there anything, as this business, as this industry goes through massive disruption, you've seen it work out in media and, and, and or seen it change in media. What is it you would, I know you're not a transportation professional by, by trade, but you've seen a lot of industries go through this evolution. We're at the, if you sort of compared us to media, we're I'm, 1995. I'm paying, you know, because of TED and because of other things, I'm, I'm, I'm dangerous in my knowledge of what's going on now because of investors and people have reached out to me, the Coyote deal, like I'm flirting with this space. Here's what's about to happen. You, you put it right, which is technology and like the world is technology and innovation are gonna eat up every sector. It started with the bookstore business. Bezos just decided that's what he wanted to do, and if you owned a family bookstore or a regional bookstore or even a global bookstore like Borders, it was your turn. That happened to be 1997. I, I spoke at the Black Car and Limo conference one year after Uber launched, ironically, just randomly, in my speaking career, and I stood on stage and said, you guys are looking, you know, the whole vibe there was we're gonna use City Hall and the government to stop Uber. And I said, you're naive. Innovation always wins. I don't give a shit how much money you're giving to a politician. And so what I would say is what's clearly happened in this business is we are in the kind of second quarter of the macro innovation and money world realizing there's opportunity to innovate because it's, there's a lot of mom and pop stuff going on. A lot of like, you know, tried and true stuff that doesn't map the reality of a 2019 world. And I, I do believe that there's going to be a lot of disruption in this sector, more consolidation, more money brought in, new brands built out of nowhere overnight. And I think people need to heed that call. Like what value are you bringing? Yeah. Are you a commodity? or you a brand? And most people are a commodity. And, and they should be invested in their, how they define their brand and how they differentiate it. The number one thing in wrapping up, like back to tangible advice, I couldn't, couldn't say this more passionately. Every single person here that is empowered to do so needs to go spend the next 100 days having phone calls, having dinner, having breakfast, having drinks with every one of their customers and they need to listen to what they care about and then I need to go back to the pad and cook that meal. That's all I do. I read my comments, you know, left and right. Like, I, you know, I was just talking with your CMO prepping, you know, you, were, you guys were wrapping up, and she's like, are you always like this on your phone? And I was <laughs> laughing what I was doing. I was reading comments. Yeah. Because the qualitative feedback is the insight I need for the next innovation. Yeah. And the amount of people who hope their customers like what they are doing or they're trying to force their customers to like what they want to sell is fascinating for me yeah. to watch. You know, I, I just don't understand how people aren't spending all their time interacting with their customer and figuring out what they need based on that in parallel with where they see the world's going. It's a very fine line, right? One of my favorite CEOs is John Legere, the CEO of T-Mobile. I've never met him. I think their service sucks. No offense to T-Mobile, but it's bad network having had it. But I love the brand. I love John Legere because he personally answers text messages. He personally tweets it. And he also, you can communicate to him. He's a personality. And I think he has a very powerful, uh, he's built this very powerful brand, not only around him, but around this idea that they're, they're punching the AT&T and Verizon yeah, in the face. That's right. And there is a huge variable of success for T-Mobile in that delta against the quality of their product. That story is the best because uh, one thing that I, I, the reason I want everybody to go and talk to their clients is because inevitably they're gonna fix their product or service. Mm -hmm. And one thing I always tell people when they hire VaynerMedia, if I'm in the room or if I'm meeting with an executive, I'm like, look, what we do well is we speed up the process of everybody knowing about you. And if your product sucks, that only means the world's (laughs) gonna know your product sucks faster. (laughs) And so, you know, I love marketing and communications. I think it is the foundation of our society. If you really play out the chess moves of innovation, what ends up happening is most things become a commodity and communications and marketing become the delta. And so I, I, it, there has never been a more important era to understand your marketing and communications. And as we're wrapping up and I see the clock, please stop being a headline reader 
and start being a practitioner. The amount of people here who have power to make calls that make decisions about Facebook or LinkedIn or YouTube or podcasting because they read an article versus the fact that they've actually run an ad or run ads or have tried to execute is remarkable. The amount of people that come up to me like, Gary, you love Facebook marketing, but what about Cambridge Analytica? And I'm like, what about it? The amount of people that have thoughts about Facebook and Cambridge Analytica or things of that nature but have no idea what it means, you know, I, I couldn't be more passionate in reminding everybody this will be the great era of practitioners, not headline readers, and everybody's got two cents on why something doesn't work for their business, yet they've never actually done it. And that to me is hypocrisy at the highest order. Well, the reason these people are sitting in the room, to your point, is because we built our brand on social media. Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, we figured it out. Not ha- had zero experience of doing this, zero. And we reversed, we figured out the model using data and informed uh, information, that's why. And, have, and have to wrap up, I think words matter. I think people, because of the way social media grew in our society, started as a kid thing, the word social media throws people off. Guys, social media is a slang term for the current state of the internet. If you think the internet's important, you may want to really understand how to use it for the benefit of what you're trying to accomplish. Thanks guys for listening. Please, please, please share the podcast and make sure you've subscribed because a bunch of you aren't subscribed and more importantly, a bunch of you listen every day and haven't told your friends it's the best podcast in the world. I'm watching. (laughs) Have a great day.